done since we've been here. Just as a reference, that's the low in Nashville right now. So glad you're here. Glad we have a time here in the middle of the week to do a little Bible study. Before we get started, everybody's coming in and settling. Let's uh, let's open with a word of prayer this evening. Wonderful Father, what an awesome day it's been to be in your creation, to see your glory. We thank you for how you remind us each day of how powerful you are and that you are the creator. We thank you for this evening and the time we have to spend in your word. Bless our conversation and discussion that we will open your word and allow you to speak to us and that we will hear what you would have us to hear. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be around Genesis 18 and following. Um, just as a reminder, we got last week to where Abram and Sarai became Abraham and Sarah. Um, we made it to where they were told they were going to have a baby, and she laughed. And um, we kind of were at the part where Abraham separated from his nephew. Who's his nephew? Yeah, Lot. He and Lot separated. Which way did Lot go? Yeah, Sodom to the, was it a good-looking area or a bad area? Yeah. I mean, he looked at the Jordan Valley and said, wow, that's beautiful, that's great, that's where I want to go. Based on the way it's written, we feel like the reputation of Sodom was already there, so we feel like he made that choice even knowing what was there. I don't know that we can guarantee that based on what the Scripture says, but that's kind of what it leads to. But what we basically have now in chapter 18 is God has made a decision. So... Tell me something you know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Wicked, yeah. Sin, wicked sin. What else? I heard something over here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and so these were probably cities that had a reputation, a lineage of uh, bad behavior yes good so we talk about wicked sin these cities were sister states kind of leading to babylon so they had this lineage of we're not going to be good right um and so despite all of that we get to chapter 18 and where has lot settled himself yeah where is he living Right, but what city specifically? Yeah, Lot has settled in Sodom. Now, is he just a transient person coming through Sodom? Do we know from the story what Lot's involvement was with Sodom? He's at the city gate. And at the city gate is not going to be 300 people. It's not going to be 100 people. It's going to be a handful of leaders of the city. And we're going to see tonight that Lot knew exactly what went on with the city because he's going to make a statement to the angels that visit him about not staying out at night. So this is not Lot going, whoops, I found myself in this bad city, right? This is Lot making a decision to move into a bad city and to stay there. So uh, in chapter 18, in verse 20, God has visited, as we talked about last week, God has visited with Abraham and Sarah. God is now, or the Lord and his angels, or the... Angels of the Lord, there's some terminology there. Many people believe this is Jesus and angels visiting with Abraham, and there's good uh, Hebrew to back that. But either way, God's messengers and the Lord, whatever that means, has visited with Abraham. And the messengers, the angels, go to leave Abraham. And the Lord says to Abraham, 
I'm going to go check on Sodom and see if their wickedness is as great as what I think it is. I've heard about their wickedness, and I'm going to basically destroy them. And what's Abraham's response? Good riddance, right? No. This is a bad city. Get rid of them. No. What's his response? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? I mean, are you going to wipe out this whole city because of a few wicked people? Right? And so I tell you what, God, let's make a deal. If you can find 50 people, you would surely you'd save the city. Right? Now, God has made up his mind, but what's God's response? You know, we'll talk about this with some other stories, and it's very difficult because we have human minds. God can change his mind. Now, I use the word mind very loosely there because God does not have a mind the way we have a mind. But God changes his mind multiple times throughout the Old Testament, which is hard because God knows what's going to happen. So try to, wrap your, try to wrap your brain around that, James. He knew what was going to happen, but he changed his mind. Did he already know he was going to change? It gets very confusing. But what we see here is God is willing to give them another chance. And so if you can find 50 people, I'll save them. And then Abraham, and I'm going to make this joke because it was made, being the consummate Jew that he is, decides we're going to bargain from there, right? So from 50, he goes to what? 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, 10 people. God, if you can find 10 righteous people, surely you'll save the city, right? And God's response is absolutely. Now remember, you've got Lot and his wife and his two daughters that God is considering righteous. We'll talk about that separately. Was Lot a righteous man? God considered him righteous, but we see everything that points to him being a sinful person, right? Bad decision after bad decision, sinful decision after sinful decision, and we'll talk about that. This is a man who said, I've got two virgin daughters, why don't you have sex with them? So let's talk about whether we would consider that righteous or not. But that's four, so all we need is six more in this city, okay? And God can't find them. Now, I hear people talk about, we'll talk about this in a minute. I hear people talk about, you know, we live in a wicked society. In fact, somebody told me Sunday, don't you think society's as wicked as it's ever been? And I, with a resounding no, 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 not even close. We're as righteous as society's ever been in this century, at least. The last hundred years is more righteous than any other time in history. You're talking about a city that can't find six righteous people? They can't find five. There's only four in the entire city. And to be righteous, I'm offering my daughters as prostitutes. That's the standard for righteousness, and we can't find five? No, we do not live in an unrighteous society compared to... You're talking about a time when child sacrifice was accepted, temple idol worship that included male prostitution and female prostitution and homosexuality. So, no, I think we have problems in our society, but let's talk about how very blessed we are, right, compared to what Lot was dealing with. So I give Lot a hard time. He's at the gate of the city. He shouldn't have been. But Lot lives in a place where he couldn't find a single other righteous person in either city. Think about that. There's not another righteous person to be found anywhere. And that's what he was dealing with. So let's talk about Lot. 
Lot offered his daughters for sex. He stayed in the city when the angel said leave. He stayed more when he said we're about to kill you. He couldn't get his son-in-laws to come with them. He moved into Sodom with the reputation that was there. His wife looked back and died. And right after they leave the city, commits sin with his daughters. But God considered him righteous. So, what lesson? I have a lesson here. that I, Before we get in, I have a lesson. And, you know, every week I say there's going to be a few lessons. You know what this teaches me? God has always been a God full of grace and mercy. See, we make this mistake, and I hear this all the time, Old Testament God, right? That vengeful, terrible, not terrible, but mighty Old Testament God to be feared. And then we have a New Testament God, New Testament God that is full of grace and mercy. I'm here to tell you that God is the same God, and he, I can come up with dozens of places in the Old Testament where God's grace and mercy was on display. God has always been a loving, gracious, merciful God. Always. He is about to spare Lot, the man whose resume is pretty poor. He's about to spare his life and his wife's life and his children's life because he is a gracious God. In addition, he's willing to spare an entire city. If Abram can come up with six more righteous people, I'll save them all. God is a gracious, merciful God, and he has always been that way. But there is this idea that New Testament God, Old Testament God. So 2 Timothy 1.9, Who saves us and calls us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. His mercy and grace was given before the ages began. Now, the Old Testament has this law. That's a separate issue. But understand, God is very merciful and gracious in the Old Testament, just as he is in the New Testament. We'll also talk about the God of the Old Testament that struck down Sodom, is the same one who strikes down Ananias and Sapphira, is the same one who will be on Judgment Day. So, both aspects of God. In fact, we say it all the time. Does God change? Does his nature change? No. This should be very reassuring for us, though. God has always been a God of grace and mercy. That should be something that makes me go, thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. So, God has a plan to get Lot out. And he uh, sends in his two angels, and they find Lot at the city gate, as we talked about. Again, that's not accidentally put there. Everything in the Bible is there for a reason. It means Lot is a leader of the city. He was at the place of prominence at the city gate. And the angels say, we're going to sleep out on the street. What's Lot's response? Yeah, don't do that. Why? He know. Yeah, the, the, again, this is Lot not not Lot going. I love my hometown; it's a great place. But this is a bad part of town. We're going to avoid it. This is Lot going. I don't want you to be raped in the streets by these men. That would happen anytime somebody comes into town, right? That's what Lot knew. And you have to say, then why are you living there, Lot? You know, why are you staying in that city if that's what you know it to be like? So, um, again, we talk about how bad, I've got that written down here, we talk about bad, how bad society is, but this is a, a city that was going to openly rape and sodomize these two visitors the first night they're there. The first night that they're there. So, all right. Um, the angels give Lot an out. 
They go into his house. I think you know the story, but we try to go through it for those who, who don't know. They go into his house that night. They have dinner. And before they go to sleep, the men of the city surround the house, beat on the door. They demand that Lot send out these two men so that they can have sex with them. Okay, um, And Lot, being the righteous man that he is, says, no, no, I'm not going to send them out. They're guests in my house, but how about these two daughters of mine? Okay. Um, he's saved because they're about to, they are attacking Lot. They're breaking into his house. And the angels reach out and they bring him in and do what else? Yeah, they strike the whole city with blindness. Now, at that point, if you're able to strike an entire city with blindness, anything you tell me to do, I'm going to do, right? I'm not going to linger. But we see the Lot being told by the angels, the Lord's going to strike down this city. You need to run, don't look back, get everybody you can to get out. And Lot lingers around, and he goes and talks to his son-in-laws. And then he, they grab him by the arm and say, leave, and he hangs around a little longer, can't get his son-in-laws to go, hangs around a little longer. I'm painting a picture of a Lot that in our minds deserves to die. But in God's mind, he's going to give him grace and mercy. Old Testament God, again, Old Testament vengeful God, Old Testament God that we talked about, we should fear and that we should tremble and he's going to strike people dead. That Old Testament vengeful God is trying to give Lot a second, third, fourth, fifth, one hundredth chance and that's very reassuring to me. It's very reassuring to me that God has that much patience with him. So they tell Lot and his wife not to look back. They flee the city and we know the story. What does she do? What does Lot's wife do? Yeah. She looks back. Turns out really well for her. Um, she turns into a pillar of salt. We don't see a lot of detail there because um, it's not the, per- the point of it. So here's the second lesson. We talked about this God that is graceful and merciful. But the other lesson is God strikes down Sodom and Gomorrah. The lesson is God will punish wickedness. Always. Wickedness will be punished one way or the other. There's a price to pay for sin. You may say, well, Stephen, wait a minute. You just said this gracious and merciful. Absolutely. He is patient. He is gracious. He is merciful. But at some point, his holiness means he cannot tolerate sin. And at some point, he says, that's it. Now, in the Old Testament, we do see him reaching into his creation more. We don't see that in modern day. We see it some in the New Testament, but not the same. But at some point, this punishment will occur again. Yes. I want to be there. I want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. So that's a, good, that's a good point. Russ talks about the looking back wasn't just a, we said don't look back. Oh, I glanced over my shoulder. She's dead. She looks back to where she wants to be. She didn't want to leave this city. They didn't want to leave their friends. But isn't that what a life of sin does for us? We talked about it Sunday in my sermon, right? It's, it's easy to say, I've repented. Woo-hoo, that's a life behind me. But it's hard to say, I'm not going to go back to that life. I'm not going to look back at that life. 
I'm not going to let that life get a hold of me and pull me back. That's, that's hard to do, and she, she struggled with it. The other thing is we don't know. We know that God rained down fire and brimstone. We don't know if he didn't want somebody to see how he destroyed it. We don't know if the angels were involved. We don't know any of that. And so he had a rule there in place. And I think it gets back to he was very gracious and merciful, but he knew her heart. Why are you destroying that city? I want to be a part of that city. And that's what he he said, don't look back. This isn't where you need to be. So let me ask this. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Does that make you, I mean, they had great wickedness, right? And what was the, when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, what's the wickedness and sin we talk about? Let's be honest. Sexual sin, right? Homosexuality and sexual immorality. And God strikes them dead. Doesn't that make you feel good that God punished that? I mean, aren't we happy that God struck those Sodomites down? Isn't that good that God wiped out these horrible people? Of course, the answer is no. But it's easy for us to say, well... That's a horrible sin. God should have struck them down. I mean, that is easy for me to say that, right? If they're going to do that, that, they got what they deserved. And I've heard that said from the pulpit. Not here. I've heard that said from classrooms. I've heard that said in conversations. Well, doing what they were doing, they got what they deserved. And my immediate response is always, I hope I don't get what I deserve. Right? And so... The idea of, as Christians, we look at those terrible sins and say, I hope they get what they deserve. We do that today all the time, people. We do that today all the time. Have you ever looked down the street at the other church and say, I hope they end up in hell? Because they're not doing what we're doing. If you get to heaven and God says, my grace is enough to cover this entire group of people that worshiped differently than what I wanted them to do, are you going to be upset if they get into heaven? There's the running joke that one day when we all get to heaven, the members of the Church of Christ are going to be walking around, and there's a big wall. And it's like, why is there a big wall? Because if you could see the other Christians on the other side, you'd be upset that they were here. I have no idea where God's going to draw the line. I want to make it very clear. I want to do as much as I can, as right as I can for God. But if God lets 20 million extra people into heaven because of his grace and mercy, if that, if that thought upsets you, then you need to reevaluate whether you're a Christian. I want God's grace and mercy to go deeper and wider than it could ever go. So I will always teach truth, but I will never say, well, if you have a piano in your, in your auditorium, you're going to hell. It is never my job to determine who's going to hell or to tell someone they're going to hell. My job is to teach right here, to teach the truth 100%. But I hope God's grace and mercy extends so much deeper than I can imagine. So would you be upset if someone goes through their entire life living a certain way and in the last minute they get baptized and do you feel like, well, they got in kind of the cheap way, didn't they? They didn't pay the price I paid. They didn't suffer the way I suffered. They didn't put in a lifelong service like I did. And if your answer to any of that is, oh, yeah, then guess what? You think you're earning your way to heaven. You don't think it's a free gift. So if you're upset that someone who claims to be a Baptist here on earth ends up in heaven, then you're not, then you think you're earning your way to heaven. If you're upset that someone on the deathbed gets baptized and makes the same reward you get, then you think you're earning your way to heaven. So when I see Sodom and Gomorrah, 
I'm horrified that they that they died. God did what was right because God is holy and he did what was right. But it horrifies me to think an entire city was wiped out. They have no chance to make it right. God knew what he was doing. And I hope he never does that again, but at some point he will. And so what I should be doing is saying, oh, yes, go ahead, Tracy. Right. Hmm? You know, you make a good point there. Tracy's talking about it didn't please God to do this. And I think many of us have a view of God who's sitting up there with a lightning bolt, right? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, there they go. Ha, they sinned. Got them. Right? He's waiting for the next Sodom so he can... God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to be in heaven. And so he's doing what he has to do because of his holiness, because of who he is as God. He's not going to allow sin in his presence. But he doesn't want to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. He took no pleasure in it. And the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah grew, and people knew it. So he didn't do it the first time it happened. He had been very patient with them. But if we as Christians get upset with the idea of somebody else getting into heaven, upset with the idea of somebody else getting forgiveness, we've got a problem. If you get frustrated that someone else... Now, again, you may say, Stephen, are you saying everybody who claims to be a Christian go to heaven? I'm not saying that at all. Because I I will give you one thing I know 100% sure. God's not going to ask my opinion. I promise. So I don't know if he's going to... If all of us in here are going to heaven, that's great. I hope everybody in Anchorage is going to heaven. Well, they're not living the right... I agree. I'm not living a holy life. Theirs may be less holy, but it's still... Mine's still not holy, right? I'm trying, but am I perfect? No. And so if I have one sin, I'm not going to heaven. So how many sins can you do and get into heaven? How many ways can you mess up and get into heaven? So if it upsets you that people might get into heaven who might worship differently than you or who might claim to be differently than you, we need to come back to the book and let's have a Bible study because that's not what the Bible teaches. You think you're earning your way to heaven. That's what that means. If you're upset that somebody else... In fact, there's a parable about people that show up at the end of the day and get the full payment. Yeah, and God was calling people out. And as frustrated as you may be right now, that's the way they reacted to that parable. What do you mean they showed up and worked an hour and got the same pay as me? So, when I look at Sodom, I know God punishes wickedness, but I hope, I hope His grace and mercy is so wide and so deep that he's as patient with me as he was with them. He's as patient with me as he was with other people that messed up. And we're going to see that with the Israelites. We're going to see a pattern with the Israelites over thousands of years of them being the stupidest group of people we ever saw, blah, blah, blah. And then we're going to go, well, yeah, that's kind of me in my life too. So thank goodness he was patient with them because I want him to be patient with me. So, all right. Sorry, I got on my soapbox there. Any questions, any comments? Good comments so far. And please don't read anything into what I just said, that I somehow believe certain people are in heaven or not in heaven. I'm not claiming that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I'm simply claiming that it's God that's the judge, not me, and I want as much grace and mercy for everybody as possible. All right, Genesis 21. So we're past Sodom and Gomorrah. They get wiped out. I will say the interesting thing for me is I would love to know where Sodom and Gomorrah are or were. Uh, There's a lot of discussion about that. Some think it's where the Dead Sea was. And there's some 
archaeological evidence and ge- geological evidence, but we don't know where they were, um, so nobody knows exactly. But um, as we move on in Genesis 21, we have this. Remember Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's 99. Excuse me, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's 99. Sarah's 90. And God says, "In a year, you're going to have a baby." She laughs. Um, and I told you last week that we laughed at some friends of ours that are our age and have one graduating preschool. And it, it, I just can't imagine being 99. And now she's 100, and she gives birth to Isaac, 100 years old. It, we give her a hard time for laughing, but I'm here to tell you, at 99, it'd be hard to get that message. It would be. Um, and make no bones about it. There's no, I can say medical terms. There's no, no, no doubt about it. She is through menopause. The Bible tells us she is past that point. The way of the woman is the way it describes it. So she cannot get pregnant through any other way other than miraculous intervention. Okay, There is no doubt about that. So how old was Abraham when God first promised him to be the father of a great nation? Anybody remember? 75, is that what I, right, 75, yeah. How old is he when Isaac's born? 100. So you're going to be the father of a great nation. You don't even have a newborn until you're 100. 25 years. 25 years. The lesson I have there is God sure has a different timeline than I do. Because if I'm going to be the father of a great nation, I want to pop out 20 kids in 25 years, right? We need to get a bunch of them out there. We need little Heffingtons to multiply, be fruitful and multiply in some way. He says, no, you're not even going to have the first kid for 25 years, and that's the only one you're going to have. Um, So the lesson, we talked about them last week, so we won't uh, spend a lot of time here. Number one, again, God keeps his promises. Boy, that's a really reassuring lesson, right? 25 years later, you finally have a kid. God God keeps his promises. Number two, um, Genesis 18 and verse 14, when the angels are talking to Sarah and she laughs, And the response is, is anything too hard for the Lord? So the second lesson is, God can do anything. And we talked about that last week as well. There is nothing impossible with God. Anytime you're worried about your life and what God can do, anytime you're worried about God's intervention, can I get through this? Can I make it? Think of the 100-year-old with the newborn. That's what you have to do. That's all you have to do. 100-year-old with the newborn. God can do anything. Those both should be reassuring. And then finally, the lesson on that, uh, God's timing is different than our timing. Have you ever uh, asked God for something and then waited? Not gotten your answer right away? Ever gotten frustrated about it? I have. Oh, I'd never get frustrated with God. I have. I'm human. I've gotten frustrated. Have you ever looked back on a situation and you're glad that God did not grant what you asked for at that time? Yeah. I can tell you right now, this will come as a shock. As a teenage boy, I was obnoxious. I know, that's shocking. James, you, you probably thought I was a little humble kid. That's right. Had I met my current wife a year or two earlier, she probably would not be my current wife. I'll just be honest with you. What's funny is we cross paths, this is not an exaggeration, 25 times. So we are literally in college at a mixer to get to know people. I look over and see three people I've known my entire life that are her three best friends and her. Never met her before. She looks over and sees three people she has known her entire life and me. She's never met me before. We talk about people that are common friends, places we went together, camps that overlapped. She works the Lipscomb basketball games, and I went. I had a sister-in-law that played. I had a sister that played. We probably crossed paths 25 times, 50 times. 
But God knew this really quiet, reserved Stephen Heffington that was a teenage boy, right, probably needed a few more years on him before we're going to let him find his future wife. But I didn't start praying for a wife when I suddenly got to college and thought, okay, now I'm a man, I'm grown up, let's pray for I mean, I, when I was younger, I thought, God, send a wife to me. Why didn't he just at age 12 say, Emily, this is the person you're going to marry in six years, right? God's timing is different than our timing. Um, whether that's true in relationships, in jobs, um, in health. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, a man who literally saw Jesus in heaven, prayed repeatedly for his thorn in the flesh to be removed. Why didn't God just remove? Wouldn't he have been more effective? God's timing is different than Paul's was. God knew what was best for Paul, and he was going to keep that there. 25 years. I'm going to make you a great nation. In 25 years, we'll start the process. You're not going to see the land I told you. You're only going to see one offspring, even though there's going to be millions one day. But God's timing is different. Genesis 22. Now God puts Abram to the test. This is the story where most people know that Abram becomes a man of faith, right? Abraham proves his faith. In fact, um, we have what we call maybe the Faith Hall of Fame. What is that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Hebrews? Yeah, Hebrews, right? We've got the Faith Hall of Fame in, in Hebrews. The people who are just the greatest people of faith. And Abraham's mentioned a couple of times. Wow, that's pretty cool. So Abraham is this man of faith. And God is going to test. Isaac is a young boy. And God asks him to sacrifice Isaac. And what's Abraham's response? Hmm. Wait a minute. You told me I was going to be the father of a great nation. He's my only child. Are you sure, God? I just want to clarify. I'm willing to do it. But are you sure? All we know is the Bible tells us early the next morning he's up and moving. Okay? Now, I want you to think about how challenging that is. Abraham is being tested by God, not tempted, but tested by God. How in the world is Abraham able to pass that test? Well, let's go back the previous 10 chapters, and we see an Abraham that's praying to God. We see an Abraham that leaves his family and trusts God when he says, go. We see an Abraham that's following God's exact commands. We see an Abraham that gives God credit and sacrifices with Abimelech, um, excuse me, Melchizedek, right? He says, God is the reason I have this. We see an Abraham that is unselfish and gave the best to Lot. We see an Abraham that then goes down and rescues his family. He cares about his family. We see an Abraham that cares about a city he doesn't know but doesn't want them to die. What we see is an Abraham that has been building his faith, building his reliance on God his entire life, so that when the big thing hits, okay, I'm going to sacrifice my son. Because you don't wake up one day and you've kind of been a halfway Christian and then say, I'm going to give it all to God today. Because what you're going to do is say, I'm going to give it all to God. Well, does he really need it all? Well, he never asked me to. And all of a sudden we're back where we are. Abraham has been building his faith his entire life. He's been doing the small things and the medium things and the big things so that when this huge thing comes up, he's ready to go. Building faith is a process. Is what I have written down here. Second Peter 1, verse 5 and following, it talks about adding things to your faith. 
talks about building upon those things. We talked about it a little Sunday. Training, right? Preparing. You know, I want to be a great Christian. Okay, what are you doing to get ready? Well, if God ever asked me to, to sacrifice my life, I'm willing to. That's easy to say because for 99.999% of the world, God's not going to ask them to sacrifice their life on this earth, and so we can make those huge claims. Are you willing to sacrifice your child? I'm willing to sacrifice my child, especially the one I don't like, right? Well, you can make that claim when God never asked that of you. But are you willing to give up a few hours a week? Are you willing to give a little more of your money? Are you willing to serve in some way? What about those hard things? See, I think it's very easy to say if someone put a gun to my head and said, I'm going to kill you, if you unless you say you're not a Christian. I think it's very easy to say, I'm willing to die for God. It's much harder to say, I'm willing to skip the Super Bowl to be here. That's right. I can, I can die for him, but am I willing to live for him? Abraham was faithful in the little things. So that when the big test came along, he was ready to go. When we aren't faithful in the little things, why do we wonder why God never gives us the big test? Guess what? He knows the answer. You've already failed the little test. He doesn't have to give you the big test. You don't make it to the final exam of the semester by failing the first three quizzes. some point, you're not in the class anymore. Abraham passed all the quizzes and the exams so that when the final exam came around, he was ready to go. Most of us skip the quizzes and the homework and hope that if we get asked one day, we'll pass the final exam. Building faith is a process, and it's something that we should be doing in all aspects of our life, in the little things, so that when the big thing arises, we're ready to pass the test like Abraham was. So Abraham, is, is, he gets his son, he takes Isaac up on the mountain, and he's about to sacrifice Isaac, okay? Does Abraham actually kill Isaac? This is a point of debate. He does not. I've heard people say, well, he must have. No. Read Genesis very carefully. Do not touch your son. That's what he's told. Abraham does not kill Isaac. Does he sacrifice Isaac? Yes. Yes, he does. Right? He never kills him, but he sacrifices him. We're told in Hebrews, because he was willing to sacrifice his son, right? We're told, even here in Genesis, because you did not hold back your only son, right? He is considered faithful because he offered his son. In James chapter 2, he was faithful because he offered his son to the Lord, offered him as a sacrifice to the Lord. How do we rectify that? How do we rectify that he never touched his son, but he sacrificed him to God. In his heart, he sacrificed him. When Abraham's offering was made, it had nothing to do with the transaction. Does it sound similar to something I said in a, a giving conversation about three months ago and upset some people? What you do on Sunday morning by putting money or check in a plate is not your offering. That is a bank transaction is all that is. Whether we do that during worship or after worship or on Sunday or another day of the week means nothing to God. There's no command to do it on Sunday. We can study that in Corinthians if you would like. You do not have to do that as part of worship or as a family at the same time because that is not when you're sacrificing. Abram is not considered credited because he killed his son. 
He is considered faithful and credited as faithful because he sacrificed his son because he said, I'm willing to give it. Your giving to God occurs when you say, God, I'm giving X to you. I'm setting this apart. right? Setting it apart for God. I'm giving this to God. The bank transaction means nothing. It's when did you give it to God? You gave it to God when you said, God, this is yours. Abraham said, God, Isaac is yours. If you tell me to sacrifice him, you can bring him back from the light, from the dead. You can give me another child. It doesn't matter. The question is not how you're going to fix it. It's just that I'm giving you what you've asked. Even though he never killed him, he sacrificed him. So I say the same thing about our, our bank transaction means nothing to God. What means something to God is what we set apart for him, what we sacrifice for him. Now, I'll tell you, I didn't grow up thinking that way. I grew up thinking very differently until somebody on a Sunday morning said, do we even have to pass a collection plate? No, we don't. Do we have to have a prayer for the collection? No, we don't. I'm not saying do those things. But they didn't do it in the first century. They didn't pass a collection plate. We know that. In fact, we know that it didn't start happening until the Catholic Church. So we're actually taking a Catholic tradition, believe it or not, when the Catholic Church wanted to do it because they wanted people to give more, and so they started putting the plate in front of your face. Did you give anything? Because I'm watching you. Did you put anything in there? Right? What I give to God has to do with what I set apart to God, what I sacrifice to him. It has nothing to do with the bank transaction that occurs on Sunday morning. Abraham is considered faithful. He is justified because he sacrificed his son, even though he never touched him. All right. Yes. Yeah, Ryan makes a good point. I wonder if Isaac understood what was going on, his father's faith, why it happened. Right. Dad, where's gonna where's where's the right. He asked that. So he's not this is not a three or four year old. He's old enough to know there needs to be something to sacrifice, and he's old enough to carry stuff up a mountain. So, eight or nine would be the youngest he would probably be. We don't know. He could have been 14, 15, 16. But he's old enough to know when dad ties his hands and puts them on the altar, he knows what's going down. So, what are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and we don't know again we don't because there's not an explanation there but God God's going to provide the sacrifice God's going to provide the sacrifice here's the ram God provided the sacrifice and how fulfilling that is as well as an opportunity to say God asked me to do this I was following I, I follow what he says all the time but still when dad raises a knife it, it would be challenging it would be challenging, but it would be an opportunity to say, this is what God's called us to do. Russ, did you have your... Mm-hmm. 
Right. Because <laughs> if, if I'm 15, 16 and dad's bounding my hands, we're going to have a talk. We're going to have a violent talk. Yeah. If you trust in God, and that's hard to know. If you, but it was a great opportunity for Abram to say, "If I trust in God, I trust in God." Not just when it's easy. Um, that is something I've had conversations with people. They'll say, "Well, I trust God." But I don't want to do X. Well, you don't trust God. Well, you can say you don't want to. Let me rephrase that. Those things I don't want to do. But if you trust God, you trust God when he says, here's the winning lottery ticket. And you trust God when he says, put the knife to your son's neck. Whoa. That's hard to do, right? If I'm just trusting God when things are going well or when I agree, that's not trusting God. That's getting a friend to agree with my opinion, right? We used to say that, and it's not the same because elders are fallible, but we used to say that when people would place membership where we were we'd always have a meeting and we would say are you willing to be subject to the authority of the elders and then we would clarify even when you don't agree with them because see if you're just subject to their authority when you agree with them you're not subject to their authority and so you can have discussions you can have disagreements but if you're subject to the authority of someone you're subject to the authority of them even when you don't agree and that means if I'm going to have faith in God all right, Isaac, I don't know how. I don't know how, but God has said he's going to provide. So I'm going to do what he told me to do. Maybe he'll raise you from the dead. Maybe he'll take me instead. Maybe my knife won't cut you. Th- I don't know. But if I'm going to have faith in God. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. So a very important word is love, a love between father and son. This is not the first time Abraham and Isaac have talked about God, obviously. This is not the first time they've talked. They've had a relationship. Oh, hey, son, I know we don't talk anymore, but let me come sacrifice you. This is probably a culmination of a relationship that included conversations about God. I came, Dad, why did we leave our ancestors? Because God asked me to. Why is it that Lot no longer had, because God chose it. Why is it that, right, yeah, why, why is mom not able to go play football with me? You know, she's 107, you know, because God, you know, so this is not the first time they've talked, that Abraham's talked about God's intervention in his life. But again, let's go back. It started with the little things so that when the big thing happened, Abraham was ready and Isaac was ready. Whatever that was, whatever his role was, Isaac was ready. You know, all of a sudden one day, people will do that, though. They have kids, and all of a sudden one day they want them to be faithful. Well, it starts when they're a year old, and when they're four years old, and when they're eight years old, and when they're first able to choose between going to Bible class or not, and when VBS is coming around, and when a work event occurs, and we don't just do the fun stuff at church, we get to do the fun service stuff at church. You know, we start at that age. There used to be this, tell me if you've heard this statistic, two-thirds, two-thirds of all children who graduate are leaving the church have you heard that statistic or the number maybe 85 percent yeah those numbers are wrong that is not true what they've done is when they dig down when you have parents who are actively involved in church 
That number is less than 5%. The issue is what's actively involved, and it's not showing up on Sunday morning. When you have parents who go at least two times a week and who have their children involved in church beyond worship and Bible study, they're involved, 95% chance when they graduate college they will be a faithful Christian. Think about that. You say, well, where does that other number come from? Well, because most people aren't in the first category. They show up on Sunday morning and want a church to raise their kids and make them Christian, right? So Abraham doesn't just one day say, hey, there's this person called God we've never talked about, and I'm going to go kill you. He's had conversations. He's had a relationship. He's talked about God to his son. And at some point, somewhere, Isaac said, I trust my dad. I trust God, whatever it is. Faithful in the little things, so when the big thing comes along, I can be faithful. All right, that's a good stopping point. We'll pick up next week with uh, Isaac and Rebecca and kind of go from there. So thank you, everybody, for your comments. Uh, Any last comments, questions, concerns, laments, interjections? Thanks, everybody.